All right, so we're doing the study of the book of Acts, and so I'm going to start off with a little bit of an apology. Um, my sermons have meandered for the past three weeks. You know it, I know it, we, we all see it. Um, and there's a reason for that. The reason is because I was trying to preach two sermons in one, and I kind of bounced back and forth between them. I'm giving up on that. Uh, so I was trying to preach a, church, a sermon on for the church and a sermon for the people, and I'm like, okay, enough with that. The church sermon's probably just notes for me anyway, so I'm going to drop that as much as I can, and um, we're just going to focus on the other part, the part that focuses on, on you. So if you've been a little bit lost in the past three weeks, you're not alone. I've heard it. Uh, I've always appreciated feedback, and I'm listening to it because I felt the same way. So a uh, little bit different today, but we are on week seven of the series, and we're studying the book of Acts. Let me catch you up quickly on where, you, where we are in the story, because we're jumping over a chapter. Uh, we, we, left up in, we left off in Acts 6 last week. We're going to be in Acts 8 today. So what's happened so far is the early Christian church started. It just started with 100 and some people all wanting to, to, to wait for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them, and as soon as it fell upon them, they started growing like fast. They went from 3,000, 12,000, like that. They're growing. They become a threat to the established Jewish religion. Uh, they're trying to, to shake them up. That's not working. Every time they try something, it just simply grows more. Last week, we started seeing that as we start getting more people coming to church, you start having people problems. And as we got people problems, they had to have people help. So they, they brought seven people forward and, and advanced them to become like the first elders or deacons of the church. And they're put in charge of helping administer to the church. That's last week. One of those guys is a guy named Stephen. Now, Stephen doesn't get a very long arc, a story arc in the book of Acts. And you'll see why in a second. But he gets a very important one because he's like this guy that when he speaks, the Spirit of the Lord falls upon him and he like glows like an angel almost. So naturally, he gets called before the Sanhedrin. They ask him to recant his teaching, which he won't do. Instead, he doubles down and teaches them all about the beginning of earth till now and why Jesus is Lord. So they, they can't have this. They take him outside and they stone him to death. He's the first martyr of the church. This is the first time they actually kill somebody. They've threatened them. They've beaten them. But this is the first time they actually kill somebody. And there's a guy there, a little footnote there in the end of chapter 7. There's this man standing there holding the coat so the people warming up to throw the stones. His name was Saul. And Saul's a Pharisee, and Saul says, this is what should happen to all these heretics. We need to stamp them out now. And he goes to Sanhedrin and says, give me a special team. They're like SS troopers. And they go bursting in their houses, start pulling people out. They're pulling them off the jail. They're beating them. And they're just terrorizing the Christian church because they're determined to stamp it out before it grows any further. That's how chapter 7 ends. So it has the opposite effect naturally because you can't outplan God. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So the, the church scattered, uh, but what they want is they, they went everywhere. So now it spreads. You know, good, good luck now because you used to have them all in Jerusalem where you keep an eye on them. Now they're going hither and yon and they're preaching everywhere they go. Now the writer of the book of Acts, a guy named Luke, has a choice to make because everybody's scattering. He has to follow somebody. He chooses to follow Philip. So if this were a movie, the, the camera would be following Philip now. We're going to see what he does. Philip clearly has a gift for evangelism. We'll see this. He's one of these guys that can meet someone, talk to them, and in five minutes, they're, they're his best friend. You know, they, some people have that natural way of talking with people. He's very good at it. He goes to a city of Samaria. This is unusual, by the way, because Samaria was hated by the Jews. Now, we don't think that way. 
we kind of like Samaritans because our only real exposure to them is the good Samaritan. They seem like good people. You know, they have a good Samaritan. They're good people over there. But that's not how the Jews felt about them. The reason Jesus chose the Samaritan was they were reviled by everybody in Jerusalem. And so by him making them the hero of the story, it was really a shocker to everybody that he turned out to be the hero. It would be like me telling a football story and a raven ended up being the good guy. It's like, whoa, whoa, I didn't see that coming, you know. So they, they were reviled by, by all these people. And there was a reason for that. The reason was they were tribe of Israel who had mixed with, which they're told not to do, mixed with the people around them. So they're kind of half-bloods. And in, in addition to mixing in marriage, they also mixed in beliefs. So they have a lot of idolatry mixed in with their Judaism. And so they kind of follow uh, Yahweh, but they kind of don't. And so there's a lot of it going on there, which is part of the reason the Jews felt they were all unclean. You need to stay away from them. They're evil and wicked. And, you know, it's a dark place. You don't want to go there. Simba, you know, if you remember that from the Lion King. So that's kind of how they all felt about Samaria. Okay, but, but Philip goes there. You know, what better place to preach the word? So he goes there and he preaches Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things. It's like everybody's like, whoa, this is amazing. It was like, I've never heard this before. So they, they, they heed the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing miracles which he did. So he's continuing the work of the apostles. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Everything's going on. We don't know what all miracles he did. Uh, For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many who were possessed. Now this is a stronghold of the enemy. And so these people, a lot of them are actually demonically possessed. And as Philip's going through preaching the word, he's also casting out the demons. And they're crying out and they're leaving. So a lot of things are going on, right? And so a whole church is starting to form in Samaria. And we're starting to see that. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So we're seeing a lot of outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there was a man there, a certain man, and now we're kind of shift again, called Simon who previously had practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria. Now, a little bit of a side here. Uh, I, you know, as I try to do, I try to read a lot of commentaries and, and read a lot of books and things. Almost every commentary I read and every sermon I read, I think almost universally, uh, will tell you that, that Simon was a charlatan, kind of like a David Blaine character. You know, he's like, does things that freak people out, but he's really a trickster, right? I have no idea why. And I frankly, I feel that's a little bit dangerous. Because the thing about the narrative of the Bible is it's really kind of just, you know, Sergeant Friday, just the facts. And so when Luke is sitting there saying he's a sorcerer, he's a sorcerer. Now, Luke wrote this part of the book simply from eyewitness testimony. He's not here yet. He will join later in the book of Acts, but he's not here yet. So how did he know this stuff happened? Well, he sat down and interviewed the people who were. Thank God, or we would have missed everything that happened in the early days of the church. So he sat down with Peter. He sat down with John. He sat down with Philip. and said, well, what was going on there? What happened in Samaria? And they told him, and he wrote it down. I find it impossible to believe that Peter was fooled by David Blaine. I just find it impossible to believe because Peter had the gifts of the Spirit showing up in his life, and two of them that he had clearly was discernment and word of knowledge because he's nailing it if you watch him in, in, in the book of Acts. I find it impossible to believe Peter would have believed he was a sorcerer if he were not. He's really a sorcerer. And they don't know that scares some people, but, you know, the other side's playing too. And if we had our apostles out there doing signs and wonders, guess what the other side was doing to try to confuse people? So this shouldn't surprise you too much. In fact, the, 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 the writer here, Luke, goes to great detail to let us know just how powerful a sorcerer Simon was. He claimed to be someone who was great, 
to whom they all gave heed, they all listened to him, from the least to the greatest in the city, saying, this man is great power of God. He is so powerful, this power must be coming from God. Now it wasn't. It's coming from the other side. It's coming from Satan. But Satan is a deceiver, and he does have some spiritual power, and he can make it look greater than it is. And so he was doing that through him, but you'll notice no more. He used to practice sorcery. This is the thing about the devil you have to understand. You don't get a relationship with the devil. He uses you. And when he's done using you, he casts you aside. And that's what had happened to Simon. So he's sitting there, kind of a has-been, and along comes Philip, and he sees a power that he's never seen before. Now, he was part of the dark side, if you want to call it, or the, Satan's army. And so he'd seen a lot of things. He'd seen demonic powers and stuff. And now he's watching demonic powers submit to Jesus Christ. He's like, whoa. The, the most powerful thing he had ever seen is just falling on their face in front of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now all of a sudden he's like, that must really be powerful. Because I thought that was powerful. But this is so powerful. They didn't even put up a fight. Whenever Philip says, you go, they go. I've never seen that before. And so he's astonished by this, right? And so he sees as they're preaching concerning the kingdom of God, men and women are being baptized, and he lines up and says, me too. Now watch what the Bible says about him. Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed. He's like watching all the signs and wonders. He's like following him around. This is just astonishing to me. He believed the gospel, he was baptized, and he followed Philip around. Now, here's the thing that we're going to get to in a minute, but I'm just going to brace you for it right now. He's not saved. He's not. He is not saved. Is it possible to believe Jesus God, be baptized, and be unsaved? Yes, it is. And in fact, I believe the reason Simon's in the book, you know, why, 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 why Luke is taking so much time on him, he wants us to know this is possible. I was taught it wasn't possible, by the way. I don't know how many of you were taught the same thing. I was taught, you know, if you press, press with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you get baptized, man, you are saved. It doesn't matter what you do. You could die tomorrow in a room with stolen goods and cocaine and hookers. It doesn't matter. You're saved because once saved, always saved. That's what I was taught. Maybe you were too. But the Bible's clearly saying, and you'll see in a minute, that he's not saved, even though he believed and he was baptized. Now, those of you who were in the Thursday night class, I told you that the guy there kind of stole some of my notes. See, there's a difference between believing that and believing in. You can believe that something is true and not put your faith in it. He believed that Jesus was the Lord, but he did not believe he would make him his Lord. He wasn't willing to believe in Jesus. He simply believed that Jesus. And you should not be surprised by this because the Bible tells us this is possible. James, Jesus' brother, says famously in James 2, you believe there's only one God? Now, here's, here's why he's saying it that way, because the question was, was Jesus God or was is Jehovah God, right? And what they were teaching was they're both God. They're one. That's what he's saying. So this is effectively saying the same thing as, you believe Jesus is Lord? You believe Jesus is God? That's effectively what he's saying here. Good. Even demons believe that. Think they're going to heaven? You think j demons don't know who Jesus is? Oh, you better read the Gospels again because they know who Jesus is. He walks up and they say, whoa, 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 what are you doing with us, son of God? They know exactly who he is. And they know exactly who his authority is. Demons believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus is God, the son of God. They know he's the son of God. Of course they believe it. But beyond that, Jesus tells us this. He says this in Matthew 7. Look, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought if you confessed with your lips, you were saved. That's, that's all it took, confessing with your lips. No, nope. you can say, Lord, Lord, but you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. No, it's he who does the will of my Father. That's who's saved. And, and he goes on and says, in fact, many will say to me in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Didn't we do all these things? Now, they're not making it up. He said, they're going to stand in front of me and said, you saw me do all those things in your name. Of course I'm saved. And he's going to say this, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, I want you to see what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, yeah, you were saved, but you fell away. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I never knew you. You, you were never part of me. You were never part of me. Oh, but, but we did all these things. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He says, in fact, you have contempt for the law. That's, that's the, the spiritual law. You have contempt for it, and you live for wickedness. You were never part of me. This is a little bit scary to think that you can be a quote-unquote believer and not be saved. But the Bible's full of this. This idea that we have to have more than just something we say with our lips. Jesus again says in Matthew chapter 15, these people draw near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Where's your heart? See, God's always looking at the heart. You can say whatever you want to say. Where's your heart? That tells me, God, Jesus is saying, if you're following me. He said, they will worship me in vain. You know, they're just going to teach nothing but the commandments of men. They're not following me. I don't care about man-made religion. I don't care what beads you hold in your hand and what prayer you say. I don't care about man-made religion. I don't care about it. What I care about is where is your heart? Our heart must receive the word of the Lord. If it doesn't, we're not going anywhere. We don't really believe in Jesus. We may believe Jesus lived. Maybe we believe he died. But if we don't believe he died for us because we need it, and we don't repent, that doesn't apply to us. It's like I can believe in anything that's happening you know, overseas. It doesn't apply to me. I don't care. And that's what it is with a lot of people. So one more time, let me just say this. Uh, Galatians 6, one of my go-to verses. Love this verse. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows the Spirit will reap everlasting life. There's a lot of people who confess Jesus with their lips, but their heart is far from him. They confess Jesus with their lips, and they go to whatever they want to do. Whatever they want to do. Or to put it another way, whatever they damn well please. I'm just going to confess, I, you know, I'm in church. I'm going to say what I was saying. Uh, I guess Jesus might be God, I guess. Yeah. And they go live their life as though he isn't. Jesus says, yeah, don't be, don't be confused with this. You can't mock God. He sees your heart. He sees your heart. How many of us have praised God with our lips and then mocked him by our actions? We say we believe. We've said it in church. We've said it maybe even to friends but then we go and act exactly like a person who does not believe. Here's the thing about it, though, that what's happening is a lot of times we want to, but there's something keeping us back. If you remember the parable of the sower, which is another one of the things we go back to this church a lot because Jesus said, this is the most important parable I'm ever going to teach you, the parable of the sower. If you don't understand this, he says to his disciples, you will understand nothing. If you remember the parable of the sower, we talk about four types of soil, and the seed of God spread on all of them. 
The first is trampled up hard ground, and nothing happens to that. It's just bird seed. Birds come down and eat it. doesn't matter. The second soil is something called rocky soil. Now, rocky soil you'd think would be the same thing. It's rocks, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about soil that has rocks buried in it. You know, kind of in a place where there, there's been some soil that's drifted over it, but underneath it there's a rock. Now, when he describes the rocky soil, he says what happens here is, man, it grows up right away because that's very fertile soil. It grows up. The plant starts you know, shooting up, and it looks like it's going to do great, but then it dies. Why? Because as soon as the roots hit the rock in them, it dies. There's nothing more it can do. The rock stops the growth, and it doesn't just stop it because things have to grow to live. It dies. See, the rocky part is when we have something buried in our lives that we know is there and no one else can see. And what happens is we take the word of God and we, yeah, but when it hits that rock, it's done. The next type of soil is the, is the, the weeds, right? It starts going up, but the, the cares of the world, and we get pulled away. And the final one's the good one. If, if I were to talk about the people who aren't in church, and I hate to use that term, but who aren't saved or in church, they're not interested. I would say most of them, most of them have probably got the weeds, they're that soil. They have weeds that's pulling them away. Either they're worried about where I'm going to live, what job I'm going to have, who I'm going to marry, getting out of college. They're just fo- focused on that. We can't even think about anything else. Or maybe they're just worried about sinning because they love it. You know, I got to, you know, I got to get high again this weekend. Got to pay to get high this weekend. I got to, you know, whatever. Whatever they're doing, you know, I want to go get laid this weekend. Whatever they're doing, it's the, 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 the world is pulling them away, right? So they may hear God's word, but the world pulls them away. Okay. That's them. But the people I run into in church, by far and away, is the rocky soil. There's something buried in their lives. And you know it because you kind of start growing as a Christian and something stops it. And like, man, I'm not getting where I need to be. I can feel it. I can feel my whole love for God's kind of dying. You know what that is? That's something buried in your life. And by far and away, I think the most common thing buried in your life, which probably keeping a lot of you from growth, and it's probably keeping you alive from seeing gifts of the Spirit, what's happening is that you have bitterness in your life. I think it's the most common buried sin amongst Christians. Have you prayed for the Spirit of the Lord while cultivating a bitter heart? See, that was Simon's problem. Let me show it to you. So when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, first of all, they were probably shocked. Whoa, who went to Samaria? Oh, that's Philip for you. Okay. They said, well, we need to send somebody out, quick. You know, so they sent Peter and John. Peter's the ace now. He's the best of the best. You know, he's the rock of the church for a reason. He's amazing. I mean, John is, you know, the youngest disciple. He was really cool, too. So they sent their best two down there. Quickly, go down there. And uh, because what they want to have them have is the Holy Spirit. Because Philip wasn't baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was just casting out demons, baptizing them. And he was moving on. He's an evangelist, man. He's moving on. But somebody has to help that church. He says, we can't have a church down there if it doesn't have the Holy Spirit. I'm so tired of churches trying to make things without the Holy Spirit. Because clearly, the apostle said, no, no, you can't have the Holy Spirit not in a church. It won't survive. We need to send them down there. So Peter and John, you know, quickly get dispatched down there. They go down there. And uh, as yet, none of them had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So when they get there, they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, whenever they receive the Holy Spirit, it's not just, you know, they babble in tongues. They get all the gifts of the Spirit. You know, we start seeing an outpouring of all kind of gifts, you know, prophecy. And then they're, they're laying a hand on the sick and the, hand, the sick are getting healed. And this is like, it's just all of a sudden, boom, it explodes, you know. It's the apostles now times 100. 
And just amazing what's going on. And Simon's watching all this too. You know, Philip's moved on. Simon's watching all this. Now you would think he would line up for the Holy Spirit, but he's because now you know who's got the real power here? Peter. That's power. Simon's attracted to power. He's trying to get the power back, right? He's attracted to power. The real power is Peter because he's so powerful, he can give power away. I want to be that guy. So when Simon saw that through laying of hand, the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was coming, he offered the money. Hey, how much would it cost for you to give me enough power to give away like this? How much? Got a checkbook right here. I'm rich. How much would it cost for me to have so much Holy Spirit I can start giving to other people? What you got? Now, I love Peter. Uh, he's, he's an interesting guy in the, in the Gospels because he's kind of like me. He makes a lot of mistakes, and I like that. But man, the book of Acts, he just, he just takes no prisoners. Peter is just awesome in the book of Acts. And basically, Peter turns to him and says, you know what? You and your money can go straight to hell. That's pretty much what he says. He says, here's, you and your money can go straight to hell. Here's, here's how he puts it. He says, your money perish with you. You, know, you can both burn up. You know, some translations, your money can burn with you in hell. That's literally what he says. If you think the gift of God can be bought with money, yeah. But I want you to see what Peter says right now. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. I want you to see what he says here. He's not saying, well, you're a bad Christian, aren't you? Oh, you need to grow up a little bit, Simon. You know, you're kind of a young Christian. You'll learn this. He's not dealing with him like that. He's saying, you've got no part of this. You know what a Venn diagram is? I hate to get off, you know, bring you back to school. But a Venn diagram is where they like to draw circles, right? And then you intersect the circles where they meet and you have intersection in the middle. That's what a Venn diagram is. If you drew a Venn diagram, Peter's saying, of God and Simon, they would be like a circle here, big space, circle here. There's no intersection. There is no part of Simon that's part of God. There's no part of God that's part of Simon. There's nothing here. And why? Because your heart is not right with God. So here's what you ought to do, Simon. Instead of being stupid and asking me to sell you something which can't be sold or bought, you ought to go and you ought to pray to God that maybe, perhaps, the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. What you said is so, such a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You need to go right now and pray to God that maybe your heart can still be saved because you're in deep peril right now, my friend, because you're not saved and you're really going off the deep end. Now, I, um, I, I think that's great, but Peter doesn't stop there. This is what I love about Peter here. He's going to use the gifts of the Spirit. He's going to look inside of the man, and he's going to use the word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit to tell him what's wrong with him. And I want you to catch what's wrong with him, because I think we're all, a lot of us, have this problem in our lives. He said, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That's sin. The bitterness in your life has shackled you to your sin. And you can't get rid of the sin because it's connected to the bitterness. And because the bitterness is there, your sin will never leave you. That's what he's saying. You're bound by sin because of your bitterness. And now Simon, you would think, he just had the, the, the ace of aces come in and tell him, hey, you need to repent. You would think you'd go, oh, what did I do? And break down and repent or something like that. He basically says, why don't you pray for me? I'm not, doing, I'm not praying. You, you guys pray for me. This won't happen to me. I, I just see this as a very arrogant kind of like, you know what? You think that's my problem? You pray for me then. And Simon walks away, and Peter lets him. And that's the last time we'll ever see Simon. But listen, bitterness in your heart will keep the Holy Spirit from your life. 
I'm telling you this is true. I'm, I'm going to show it to you in Scripture. If the Holy Spirit isn't coming in you, you don't feel the Holy Spirit, that's be, it might be a very strong possibility because of bitterness in your heart. There's other buried sin that we could talk about, but I'm only going to focus on bitterness today. The bitterness in your heart will keep the Holy Spirit from your life. And if you're wondering why you're not getting anywhere in your Christian life, I think you need to check your heart for bitterness because it is there buried deep in a lot of our lives and we won't get rid of it. Let me show it to you in Deuteronomy. God's been talking about bitterness, by the way, since the beginning. In Deuteronomy, now what's happened here, he's given this covenant and the covenant has a blessing and a curse attached to it. If you do all this, this great blessing is going to happen. If you do all this, this curse is going to happen. And he tells them, warning them, don't follow this. I don't want to see this because if I see this, it's going to be a curse. That's what this part of this verse is. There shall not be one among you, and he breaks it down, not man, nor woman, nor family, nor tribe, not one, got that? No one whose heart turns away from the Lord our God today and who serves false gods. None of you better turn away. If you want the blessing, none of you better turn away. And he goes on. He said, there should not be one among you with a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. He gets very specific about wormwood, which is a wood that would fall into water and actually corrupt the entire water source. So he says, this is what, if you have one person here with bitterness, it's going to corrupt the entire everything. Bitterness, he's saying. He puts that right on the same level of serving other gods. Do you see that? This is consistent in scripture. Bitterness, serving other gods are always on the same level. In fact, they're usually mentioned at the same time. This is how God views bitterness. It is like serving other gods. And he goes on, he says, look, may it not happen that when he hears the word of this covenant, he blesses himself in his heart saying, well, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. He says, you know what? You better not be thinking that you're hearing what I'm saying. You go, well, I'll be all right because I'm me. I'll have peace. I'll do whatever I want, but God will still bless me. It's okay. There are a lot of Christians who listen to Jesus' words and go, yeah, it's okay for others. I'm not doing that. And Jesus will still bless me, you know, because I'm me. Uh, it's, it's incredible. He says, don't, don't do that. Holding on to bitterness is a sin of the flesh. You have to understand. It's not just a sin. It is arguably the worst sin you can commit because it allows Satan into your life. In Ephesians 4, very famous verse, in your anger, do not sin. You can be angry and not sin. But he says, don't let this happen where you sin because of your anger. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. This is misinterpreted a lot. You'll see this uh, sometimes given to people in marriage counseling. You know, if you and your wife are angry with each other, don't go to sleep as if that matters, you know. Uh, don't go to sleep. Don't go to bed angry because, you know, then you're going to give the devil a foothold and he'll have a foothold. This is not what, what, uh, what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, um, giving the, being angry for a moment is normal. Making angry a lifestyle is where you're dangerous. You got to be careful about that. He's saying if, if, if you get angry for a moment, that's one thing. But if you hold on to that anger, if you hold on to the anger, it becomes a lifestyle. It becomes a way of life for you. And he says when you do that, you have given the devil a place in your life. That's all it takes. This is like you put a little altar there and said, devil, this is yours. Nice little place here for you in the middle of your life. Here's the real problem with that is that when we do that, we're kicking the Holy Spirit out because the Holy Spirit won't come where the devil is. And we've just told the devil he's allowed here. This is why it's idolatry. This is why it's idolatry. Uh, in Samuel, 
<laughs> okay, this is going to be interesting. Everything's off. All right. In Samuel, uh, famous verse, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the same as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as sinful as idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. See? Uh, so a lot of times what we do is, is we, we will hold on to this anger and we'll say we have a right to it. I have stood in this church and talked to people about it. And I'll talk, well, it kind of sets a little bit of bitterness there. I have a right to my bitterness. I've been told that by Christians. I have a right to my bitterness. I'm thinking, I can't think of another sin that I've ever had to deal with that. Where I'm talking to somebody, you know, who's addicted to cocaine. I have a right to my cocaine. I've never had anybody say that, you know. Uh, or they're, they're sleeping around. I have a right to sleep around. I have a right to internet porn. I've never, ever had anybody say that about their sin before. But they get defensive of their bitterness. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be bitter. Are you not listening to what's happening in my life? I have a right to that bitterness. Okay, that bitterness is destroying you. What do you have a right to? I, I don't understand. I don't get it. But we will sit there and tell God, yep, I have a right to my anger. It's not what God says about it. And that God says that because he sees it for what it is. It is ruining your life. It is ruining your marriage. It is ruining your families. It is ruining your, your churches. It is ruining everything. It's ruining because you have given the devil the right to have a place in your life. I have a right to do that. You can, but now you have no part of God. This is a, another famous verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, now grief is something that, uh, you know, we know about. We have a grief share program here. If somebody loses somebody in their life, what is grief? Grief is when somebody you love, who loves you, is taken away from you. You will experience grief. Grief is not just I'm a little sad. I'm a little bit morose right now. I feel blue at the moment. That's not what grief is. Grief is I have something or someone really important to me has been taken away from me. That's grief. We know that because we've all experienced grief on some level. What, what uh, Paul is saying here is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's saying you have made the Holy Spirit leave because he's lost you. We've actually kicked him out of our, our hearts, kicked him out of our lives, and he's grieving us. Just like when you lose somebody important to you, how you felt that, that loss and you just cry and you can't, it just, grief sneaks up on you, doesn't it? You think you're okay and something will happen to remind you of the person you're missing and all of a sudden you're crying again, right? This is the Holy Spirit, Paul says, over you. He's lost you. How? How did he lose you? Well, here's how. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. So what's happened is, if we have bitterness and wrath and anger in us, the Holy Spirit's like, well, I can't be there. And he loves you. And now he doesn't have you. And he's weeping for it. Okay. So tell us again. Tell God again then that we just kicked him out. Tell him again that the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't cover this sin. Sorry, God, you don't understand. I have a right to my bitterness and I'm going to hold on to it. God said, but I lost you. You understand, the Holy Spirit can't be there now. You've given the devil a place in your life. And you want to pray for gifts of the Spirit? How exactly is that going to work with, a, with, with, with the devil setting up shop in your life? Bitterness is ruining us. And, and it, is, it is something that we think nobody knows about because we've hidden it. But all it's doing is making rocky ground for us. And it's keeping the Word of God from growing in our lives. The Holy Spirit is not in control of your life if bitterness is. It's just that simple. 
you'll be driven by the bitterness. And I know people who are bitter and they can't let go of it. And here's the thing about it. Everybody in the room knows it. Ever met a bitter person? Ever have a room that a bitter person enters that was doing really great until they got there? <laughs> what happens to that room? You know, bitterness is like that wormwood wood that falls in the water of the room. And everybody's got bitterness now. If you're holding on to anger, if you're holding on to bitterness, the Holy Spirit is grieving because he's lost you. And we're going to sit there and say, well, it's okay. Doesn't matter that much. <laughs> it's just a little grudge. That's all. I'm going to hold on to it because it's a little grudge. And it makes me feel good to be angry at them because anger gives me power. No, it doesn't. Anger is taking the one power out of your life that can help it. Matthew 6, Jesus says this. For if you forgive men their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. From the beginning to the end, God is always talking about this. You're holding on to bitterness. You have given the devil a place in your heart, and the Holy Spirit cannot work there. We're like Simon. I want the Holy Spirit. Can I send a check to the church and get the Holy Spirit? Can I somehow do something? Yeah, you can get rid of the bitterness in your life. Okay, besides that, is there anything I could do besides that? Just name me anything else. I'll do it. No, you need to give up the bitterness. If we don't, it will destroy our lives. This is why God is very, very clear on what it is. And we will get before Jesus and say, Lord, he says, I didn't know you. I told you to forgive and you refused. Here, here, here's, here's who's mine, he said. Those who follow my commandments. This is a commandment. Forgive. Let go of the bitterness. Holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. Would you all please pray with me?